Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I am your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And I would just want to thank everybody for tuning in today. We have a little bit of a later show, which is not typical, but I uh, trust me, it'll be worth your wait to chime in here and listen into my special guest today. But before I go into that, I want to thank everybody who listens, watches, and reads Must Read Alaska. If you find us on the website and you're, wa- and you're reading our news stories, we really appreciate it. If you find our show on iTunes or Pandora or iHeartRadio or Spotify, we really appreciate it. Um, we are, you know, any given day, top 200 iTunes on iTunes in three or four different countries. And uh, for whatever reason, people like our show. And so it's all because of folks like you that listen. So thank you so much. If you do enjoy it, all of our content's free. So make sure to uh, leave us a five-star review. We'd really, really appreciate it. But without further ado, I would like to introduce Ben McBride to the Must Read Alaska show. And before I start asking the questions, I just want to, I usually don't do a brief introduction about our show guests. I usually let our show guests introduce themselves, but I want to give a a brief introduction to Ben McBride uh, before I hand over the mic to him with some questions, because Ben is just such an awesome person. He does so much work here in the U.S. Uh, He's a force for good. And I met Ben 10 years ago. Him and I met each other at this pastor's conference. He was sitting in the back and uh, I sat down to chat with him. And that uh, led to probably about an hour to two hour conversation that him and I had. And I was blown away by this guy. This guy in a conference where a bunch of pastors from all around the country were talking about what it would look like to move into the inner city and do work. And all these pastors were talking in theory and here was a guy who had moved into what is called, quote unquote, the kill zone with his family. So I'll let him explain a little bit more of that. But without further ado, Ben, welcome to the Must Read Alaska show. Hey, Brother John, it's good to be in this space with you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm so, so excited that you're here. So, Ben, tell our viewers a little bit about, uh, take us back to that story where you and I first met, but go deeper with it. Tell us why you moved your family into Oakland, into an area of Oakland that was, quote, unquote, the kill zone. Yeah, well, you know, it certainly wasn't a part of my five-year plan, I can tell you that much. (laughs) You know, I I had been uh, involved as uh, a vocational pastor and was really just seeking to advance my career, had a young family, and was really hoping to find ways to uh, continue to uh, make the world better uh, through the vehicle that I was in. But it was in 2006 that we had uh, 148 murders in the city of Oakland. I was on staff as a pastor. Uh, 147 of those murders happened on one side of the freeway and only one happened on the other. And I remember that Sunday as we were in our spiritual uh, time during worship, uh, the pastor said, let's all stretch our hands to the east, pray that God stops the violence. Uh, and we did so. And I remember asking myself, there has to be something more that's being asked of me in this moment, but besides just stretching my hands towards the east, I didn't even have to unbutton my suit. And, and so within a couple of years, uh, that looked like myself, my wife and three daughters uh, at that time, eight, uh, I believe four and three. Uh, moving into um, this difficult neighborhood in East Oakland that they were calling the kill zone. It's the area where uh, over 60% of the gun-related homicides occur. And we moved in, uh, really, I think when I reflect back, you know, that was now 12 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, 14 years ago. But when I look back, it it was a time where I probably thought I was bringing something uh, to the neighborhood to somehow save it. I think 14 years later, I look back now realizing that actually the neighborhood helped to save me and find help me find a deeper sense of humanity. And together, 
uh, I think we taught each other uh, what it means to really try to create a better world. But uh, yeah, it certainly was a ride. So tell us about your first night there. I think maybe the first night of the first week was a pretty crazy week. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the first week we get in there, I'm I'm going, you know, from a suburban kind of life <laughs> in, in 30 minutes outside of Oakland into this very different, you know, neighborhood in East Oakland. And I remember, you know, we, we drive onto uh, the front street. One of my neighbors is sitting out sunbathing in some swimming trunks in the middle of the street in a lawn chair. You know, I come inside at a certain point, my wife is uh, leaving to go out uh, to buy some more things at the store. And, you know, I come up through the Pentecostal tradition of uh, the Christian church. And and so I'm, I'm sitting in there and all of a sudden I just start hearing shooting and shooting and, and bullets and round after bullets. And so like a good Pentecostal, I, I run and jump on my knees and start praying. And then I hear more bullets and more bullets and more bullets. And so I start praying even harder. And then I hear more bullets. I mean, it sounds like World War III. And then at a certain point I stop because I'm just too curious about World War III happening on my front door. And I go and, and in a scared way, peek through the door, only to realize that I was living right behind the Oakland Coliseum. And it actually wasn't a gunfight at all. The Oakland A's had just won uh, the baseball game and it was fireworks. And I realized in that moment that there was a long journey that I was getting ready to go on about how I saw this neighborhood and what was really going to happen. But then you had experiences like that also um, you know, kind of juxtaposed against very real experiences where uh, not too long after that, there was a loved one who was shot right in front of my house and was screaming in the middle of the night, you know, help, help. And uh, I go and open the door and see this young brother laying there in the street bleeding. And I, I grab some towels to run out to try to put pressure on his wound to try to get him some emergency help. And, and as I go out, I remember my wife is like, what are you doing? You can't go out there. Like, what if they come back around? You're putting yourself in, in danger. And I'm like, well, what, it is, what is it that I'm supposed to do, right? And, and so I grab the towels and, and, you know, my wife tells me, well, don't take those towels. Those are the, good <laughs> those are the nice towels. Right. So, <laughs> so I think what it just kind of shows is this reality of when we're, for us, stepping into that story, trying to think about how to do good and how to make the world better. Uh, I think for us, really taught us what it meant to stand in the middle uh, between things that you want to do, the real challenges that face us all as human beings trying to live a good life. And hopefully we find the kind of courage and inspiration to step into the opportunities that life gives us to actually uh, make the world a little better. Nice. So um, you moved to Oakland and my, you know, you're a man of action. You were praying one day, God led you to move to the kill zone in Oakland. My guess is that you very quickly got involved in your community. Talk to me a little bit about what that looked like to um, get involved with uh, organizations like the PICO and um, the HEAT campaign. Tell me, tell me, you know, what those organizations did and why it was important for you to get in, involved even deeper in that community. Yeah, I think as I got involved in community, a big part of what I was trying to do was to get involved with reducing the gun-related homicides that were happening in the city. And the more that I got involved in the story and started building relationships with uh, what we like to call our loved ones, the, the young men who oftentimes are both the perpetrators and the victims of gun violence. A lot of people don't know that some of the main reasons young men pick up guns in the neighborhood is because the adults and the systems and structures have not actually given them the experience that they can be safe. And so children oftentimes are forced into a very uncomfortable position as a child that somehow they have to find safety in a place that's not safe. But the more I got involved in that story, the more I recognized that if we were going to create change, 
it wasn't only going to happen through cultural strategies in terms of me engaging and bridging across difference with other people who were challenged. I also had to get involved in structural change and figure out how can we help to remake some of the public systems that have devolved in a way that they're actually not creating uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people, regardless as to how they're entering the story. And so that got me involved in uh, doing the work of community development and community organizing, which really was a part of the work that I was doing at that time with PICO, the PICO uh, organization, and subsequently, uh, I started an initiative called Bring the Heat, which was really a uh, statewide and subsequently became a national initiative across the United States to think about how can we reform police departments in a way that help to provide more constitutional policing for particularly Black and Brown people who can experience unconstitutional policing, but also do so in a way that actually helps to protect the humanity of the human beings in law enforcement itself. And, and I don't necessarily come from a background that informs me having a lot of proximity to law enforcement. Um, there's a lot of violence. My brother was beat up by the police as a college student. The only gun I've stared down uh, was a, when I was 18 years old, you know, being racially, racially profiled in San Francisco. My, my great uncle was lynched in, in North Carolina by what was rumored to be off-duty police officers. Uh, but when I was involved in the violence prevention work, uh, one of the things I realized was that I was bringing my baggage to the table and so were the police officers. And what it is that we found was that uh, neither one of us were going anywhere. And so if we were going to really try to create a different outcome in the city of Oakland, it was going to be from us working together. And by us working together, which sometimes meant holding a lot of tension together, uh, we were able to reduce gun-related homicides by 50% in the wow. city of Oakland. Um, and not only did we do that, but Oakland had averaged an officer-involved killing Every six weeks for 20 years, we went four out of five years with no officer involved killings by us actually scaling up strategies where we bridge across difference and work on changing structure together rather than being in just an, anim, you know, animosity, you know, with a lot of animosity with each other and having a broken relationship. So the work I did with Pico, the work I did with Bring the Heat was really about trying to think about how do we get people who don't agree to the same table working on solutions that they both care about so that we can create that structural change that actually benefits us all. I love it. That's one of the things that I've enjoyed as I've followed you the last you know 10 years and what you're up to is that um, you've taken a path that you want to stick around and make a difference, but you want to work with people as opposed to just always being against them. And so I think that that's beautiful. You come into, you know, it looks on your thing, you've had a, a hundred law enforcement departments that you've trained with. And I think it's just a different um, strategy. In the, in the media, oftentimes we hear defund the police or screw the people that want to defund the police, you know, and you're saying you're working, you guys are working together, trying to figure it out. And you've figured out a way to take violent crime down by 50%. And one of the biggest murder cities in the U.S. I think that's something to be commend, you know, commended for. Well, and, and I'll say too, John, I mean, I find myself uh, along that spectrum at different times. I mean, after the murder of George Floyd, I was right in the crowd in 2020 saying, you know, maybe we need to defund the police and figure out how to refund the community and reimagine some systems and structures. And I think a lot of that call to defund, you know, for me really came from a sense of, I don't know whether we can fix these systems, you know, and I think what's what's hard in in our society is 
we're all busy. We're trying to really just take care of our families, love the people we love, <laughs> go on vacation, maybe take your dog on a walk. You're not, you're not trying to have your life, you know, disturbed with all of these big meta narrative problems. And so sometimes it's it feels easier to just say, let's just throw the whole bathtub out, throw out the baby with the bathwater, the bathtub, get rid of it all, let's start over. Um, and but what I've I found when uh, at times I will calm down um, <laughs> and then think about, okay, what's practical? What can we really do? And and at the end of the day, to me, it's really about trying to figure out how we reform and improve the institutions that we have rather than get rid of them. Uh, it's not always the most popular answer, uh, but I think if we're really going to try to create a world where everybody can belong, um, then that means sometimes some of us are going to have to take some uncomfortable positions. So my guess is you had this success, you're working, you're doing the hard work of putting two people in the room that maybe don't have the same viewpoint of what police should be. You guys are coming up with solutions over years of work. My guess is you have people calling you now saying, come fix our city, come fix our city. So you created, you're now the CEO of what's called Empower Initiatives. Tell me about what that does and why you're excited about what the work uh, you're doing there is. Yeah, well, you put your uh, thumb right on it, John. I, I think over these years, one of the things that I've been learning, popping around to these different cities, is that while all of our stories are very different, they're actually also quite similar. Um, human beings are quite similar across the notions of race, religion, creed, class, experience. There's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of similarities. And what we found is that we as human beings have been losing our ability to know how to bridge across difference and create shared outcomes. Um, I think we've all been radicalized to, uh, in the face of difference, move back into the corner of your affinity group, mistrust the person across difference, uh, find all the reasons to dehumanize them and actually to harden your position. And, and so what we've been finding is um, what's needed right now in this moment is actually to empower us to think about in the face of that anxiety, how actually do I take a step further, get closer to the perceived other uh, strengthen my ability and their ability to work together, and maybe we can find some solutions there. And so Empower Initiative, what we're doing now is really being focused on investing in the leadership capacity of leaders, uh, whether that's in the private sector, the public sector, the cultural sector, or the social change sector. And so we're working with everything from police departments to public health departments, to tech companies, to small businesses, to schools, to really try to help institutional leaders and cultures take a step beyond what historically has been called like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and even I, I, I encourage folks to take a step away from the language of anti-racism, which for me positions too much around what it is that we're against instead mm -hmm. of positioning us towards what are we for. And so our work is really about fostering belonging, which is how do we actually help us to build our skill set to create a world where everybody can belong, which might mean, for example, in the political conversation, we don't need to get conservatives to become liberals, nor do we need to get liberals to become conservatives. We actually need to help create a new social uh, contract about the fact that we have different points of view. What does harmony look like and how do we respect one another and honor the different points of view that we have because we're coming from different backgrounds without seeing a zero sum game and domination as the only way forward. And so we're having a good time uh, moving around the country. Um, uh, spending lots of time in the Northwest and the South and the West Coast and, and back East and really trying to find ways to help leaders uh, create cultures of belonging in their organizations and also manifest that in the broader society. So you are a man of faith, and that's how I first met you. 
how does that play into what you're doing now? Do you see yourself weaving that in and through everything that you're doing? Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, you and I, we met at a pastor's conference where uh, you were super generous because uh, if 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 my if I emotionally remember it, I think I was sitting in the back like, what are these people talking about? You know, this is <laughs> they've got to do better than this on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, but I think, you know, for me, it, it really on a personal level is informed by my faith. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And for me, that really means that I really believe in this notion that uh, Jesus was trying to help create uh, a new world and give birth to a new world that was fueled by uh, Holy Spirit and not a world that was fueled by human fear and instinct and mistrust of the other. And so in the work that we're doing around belonging, to me, it's almost a rebirth of uh, one of the great prophets, I believe, that the United States had, which was Martin Luther King Jr. And the language he used was beloved community. He was really calling folks to think about a beloved community, which really comes out of a Christian ethic uh, around this idea that everybody is redeemable, um, nobody deserves to be thrown away, and that there is a place at the table uh, for every person particularly the one with whom you disagree with the most. So for mm -hmm. me, the ethics around enemy love, the ethics around nonviolence, the ethics around what does it mean to actually take off your cloak and split your resources with the one who does not have, for me, fuels a lot of the work that we do uh, around belonging. It's not work that is only for Christians, but I do believe that the inspiration that is behind the work we do at Empower, for me personally, uh, as one of the co-founders, is very much so rooted into my own personal ethics uh, around these ideas that everybody uh, is redeemable um, and that there is the world is big enough for all of us uh, to uh, hold it and share it. And that doesn't mean we have to agree about everything, um, but actually I, I think that uh, we're not safer when we're segregated from one another. I actually think that our true safety is found in our integration and our deep relationships with each other across difference. I love that. So who's been a hero, hero to you over the years? You have accomplished a lot. Um, you are a force to be reckoned with, whether you like it or not. And you are somebody that uh, oftentimes uh, uh, communities look to for answers. And so who's been a hero to you over the years, somebody that you look up, looked up to and why? Yeah, I think one of the big voices that's really inspired me is actually Dr. John Powell out of uh, UC Berkeley. He's uh, the founder of the Othering and Belonging Institute. And I think what's really inspired me about him, Dr. Powell, the son of a 99-year-old uh, retired Pentecostal preacher. Uh, and while Dr. John Powell doesn't necessarily identify as a Christian now, what's inspired me about him is that he has traveled around the world and found himself bridging uh, moments of difference, uh, helping countries stay out of war with one another, uh, helping organizations find ways to make different choices uh, than harming people in the face of uh, changes that need to happen in structures. And he's done so by having a deep, deep commitment to this spiritual ethic of bridging uh, and belonging. And so he really inspires me around this notion in our moment where polarization is at an all-time high uh, to really, what does it mean to really hold the line and say, uh, I really believe that we are all radically interconnected. And so uh, I, I'm really just loving having the opportunity to continue to experience some mentorship from Dr. Powell and just uh, be blessed with you know his 50 years of leadership across our country. That's awesome. So one of the things that you were able to be involved in was a documentary 
that uh, won a Sundance Fil Film Festival Award and several other awards. Tell us about this documentary and what was it like being part of something like that that wins this prestigious award? Yeah, really interesting experience. Uh, shout out to Brother Pete Nix, who uh, was the director of uh, the Force movie uh, and documentary. And and when we started that movie, the, the movie, which I believe you can find, it's on, it's bounced from Netflix, it's on many different streaming services. Uh, but when they first started that documentary, it was really meant to do a documentary about the police department in Oakland. And it was meant to be about our violence reduction efforts as we were really experiencing a lot of success. But then that it began to be filmed right at the emergence of the movement for Black Lives that was happening uh, across the country after the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And the documentary shifted a lot. And what you'll even see of me in the movie is even a part of my own journey of going from a place of uh, doing a lot of deep bridging with law enforcement to then at one point in the movie and training law enforcement and then the movie ends and I'm actually on the freeway having led a, a group of 5,000 people to shut a major freeway down in Oakland uh, to call on the Oakland police to make some changes after a rape scandal broke and it became clear that police officers had been sexually trafficking a young uh, Latina woman, a child actually, mm. she was 16, 17 years old in our city. And so this movie I think really paints uh, the hard work that is in front of us when we're really trying to bridge across difference uh, and and what's funny is, you know, if you look at the podcast that we released, you know, Empower Initiative earlier this year, it's called An Invitation to Become. You'll you'll be able to see a sit down between myself and the featured law enforcement officer in that movie. Uh, at the time, it was Captain LeBron Armstrong. He's now the chief of police uh, in Oakland. And we sit down and reflect on some of those moments you'll see in the movie. We talk about our relationship and what it's really meant for us as two black men on two sides <laughs> of this issue who really didn't like each other in the beginning, who've had ups and downs, and yet in the middle of it all, we found ways to hold on to our humanity, uh, really invite us to take a look at the force, getting a chance to do it and, and tour the country and spread the message around the power of bridging and peacemaking uh, was really a, a thrill. That's awesome. So where can folks uh, find information about you, your podcast, give us the rundown on because uh, there's going to be lots of people that are Googling Ben McBride tonight. <laughs> yeah, listen, we would love to uh, figure out how to connect with more folks. I think to learn more about the work that uh, we're doing, there's a few ways that I'd love to invite people. One is uh, going to fosteringbelonging.org. Uh, so if you go to fosteringbelonging.org, you'll see a lot of the opportunities that people can take to find ways to bring this kind of leadership development and bridging work into the places where people are making meaning. Uh, and then another uh, website you can go to is empowerinitiative.org, which is another website that talks about both the cultural belonging work as well as some of the structural belonging work that we're still trying to do in the state of California. Uh, and if you haven't found me already, benmcbride.com uh, are ways that you could just learn more about the story that uh, I've been a part of. If you do podcasts and you've got to because you're on here with this amazing podcast. <laughs> uh, so after you get done uh, sitting with Musgrave, uh, go over to an invitation to become. And I think it'd be some interesting stories for you in that I sit down uh, this first season with the police chief. I sit down with my wife. You know, the number one question, John, when I've told people I moved my family into the kill zone of East Oakland, people always say, what did your wife say? So that's, a, that's the name of the episode. What did your wife say? And she and I have two conversations about that journey. I and I think another really interesting conversation is I actually sit down with one of the young brothers who used to be one of the shooters in Oakland, who I bridged with, 
who has now become a peace activist and nonviolent leader and is actually leading uh, peace work up in Seattle 10 years later. But we talk about his journey and just somebody getting a chance to listen to someone who was the, the super predator, as some folks called it. And then you get a chance to see him as the father, uh, the son, and, and, and somebody who actually proves that everybody is redeemable, that there's enough room at the table for us all. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining us. Do you have any last minute thoughts before we head off here? Hey, listen, I, I know in the face of a lot that's going on in our world, it's very easy for a lot of us to find ourselves pulling apart from one another, maybe because somebody says you're you're liberal or you're conservative or you're this or you're that, or I'm not sure about your politics or your religion. And 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 I know a lot of us, if we're listening to podcasts like this as well, we're also trying to figure out, well, how do we actually make the world a little better? Um, but I just want to keep inviting us to uh, realize that the wrong first question is, what do we need to do? The right first question is who do we need to become? And how does that becoming inform for us a new kind of doing that's not currently in our reach? So let's all become deeper and better versions of ourselves. Uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully get to that one day. We'll be like good brother John and we can keep working together to make this world a little better. Well, uh, Ben, I really appreciate it. Wish you nothing but success. And uh, I'll be following your success stories throughout the years. And we, we uh, wish you well here at Must Read Alaska. And for folks that are tuning in, you're gonna wanna Go back and listen to the whole thing if you just caught the last 10 minutes, because um, you're going to hear from uh, Ben McBride and the work that he's doing, not only in Oakland, but all over the U.S. and probably all around the world. So until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska signing off. Hope everybody has an awesome rest of their night. And thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. Thank you.